Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you. We made it through another week, and we've got a, a great weekend to look forward to. But it's good to be back on the air, and we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. But it seems like whenever I'm on the air, we always seem to cover a lot of ground, but I think that's good. Because if a lot of ground isn't covered, then how can any of you all out there really get your um, time's uh, worth into uh, listening um, in terms of the information that's presented? So as I've said before, my objective is not so much to teach you all what I've learned over the course of time with important historical events, but to make sure that you all, the listeners, gain a better appreciation for what you didn't know until just now. You know, that's the irony with history. Just when we think we've learned everything there is to know about someone or a particular um, situation or a famous um, event that happened some years back, we're always um, finding out something new that uh, wasn't revealed in years past. So, tonight's podcast session on founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved the nation is going to talk about uh, the period from um, June of 1780 into the early part of 1783, involving um, where James Madison and James Monroe are at this point in uh, time. What I can tell you is this, um, from where we left off from the previous podcast, James Monroe submitted his resignation from the Continental Army in late 1779, but when he has stepped down, he's not, you know, he may have left one um, position of service to his country, but it doesn't mean that he has stopped completely altogether. However, James Monroe will always still have a burning desire to want to um, go back into the actual uh, battlefield to um, fight for his country. However, in uh, late June of 1780, James Monroe will be presented with a very unique assignment by Governor Thomas Jefferson and the Council of State. I found this assignment to be rather interesting. I almost would have to say it would be kind of like the equivalent of um, maybe not a full 100% comparison, but work that would be like the equivalent of uh, of modern-day intelligence gathering with the CIA. James Monroe's um, for assignment that he re- received in late June of 1780 was being um, supervisor of courier network dispatching. So in other words, James Monroe would oversee riders making their way from Virginia into the Carolinas, and Monroe himself would station couriers for every 40 miles. And remember, folks, a courier in those days, and we still refer to the term courier today, but that was the equivalent of an express rider. Um, So it's smart to have stations established every 40 miles, because if not, then then a a certain select number of uh, couriers are going to be overwhelmed with work. And not everybody could cover, at best, 40 miles in a night. If they did, um, they have a lot of um, good fortune on their side, to say the least. So, basically, these couriers will do their work by night, and then relay the information once back in Virginia. Remember, folks, you know, we don't have telephones back then. We don't have email. 
we don't have obviously the the technology that we have today for gathering intelligence, but in the late 18th century, during the time that the American Revolutionary War is going on, intelligence gathering is very unique for its time. And I would have to say that courier uh, dispatchers or courier the courier networking system uh, will be very significant. Um, we already saw it uh, five years earlier in 1775 when Paul Revere uh, established a network of riders who would go from north and south to east and west, alerting um, all the townspeople outside of Boston that the British were coming and that everybody needs to um, assemble and gather, that is, those who are um, participants in the militias, all need to assemble and gather to get ready to take up arms against England. But in this case, in, from Virginia into the Carolinas, James Monroe is making sure that uh, Virginia especially, given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 states, that Virginia will be protected in every way possible. And how so? Well, on June 22nd of 1780, James Monroe arrived into North Carolina and met with Governor Abner Nash and General Richard Caswell. Now, here's a little interesting history about Governor Abner Nash. There is a county in North Carolina called Nash County, named in his honor. And my wife was originally born in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, at um, Nash General Hospital, which is still around. So when you see uh, exit signs for Nash General Hospital when going down 95 into uh, Rocky Mount or Nash County, North Carolina, uh, you can think of Abner Nash. Now, James Monroe uh, was uh, found out through Governor Abner Nash and General Richard Caswell that uh, 6,000 men had left for Charleston under British General Sir Henry Clinton, including another 4,000 cavalry and 600 infantry under Colonel uh, Bannistray Tarleton and Lord Cornwallis in North Carolina. So uh, it's very fair to say that, that there are um, a high number of British uh, forces who are, ready to, um, who are ready to launch attacks, not just elsewhere in the Carolinas, but the ultimate goal was to get Virginia. Given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 states, in this situation, Virginia would have a lot to lose if she is not um, well um, prepared in terms of uh, having proper um, defensive um, strategies to ward off um, potential outside attacks. Now, any of you all want to know what amnesty means? I'm sure most of you all know what it means, but for those of you who aren't sure what amnesty is, it's a mass pardon, or in this case, when it comes to warfare, mass pardoning of troops. And not just part, a mass pardoning of troops, but in this case, civilians and prisoners. What the British are trying to do here is they will issue a pardon to a mass number of um, people on the Patriot side. They want to find a way to um, switch them over in terms of uh, shifting their allegiances to say, hey, if you don't take up arms with the rebels and you take up an allegiance with the crown, then we will not um, confiscate any of your property. We will not um, destroy your home. Uh, we will not um, make any threats towards your family. Well, it's fair to say that um, I would suspect a fair number of these people, if they were smart enough, turned down the offer. 
However, for those who did not um, swear any allegiance to the crown, it sadly meant being sentenced to death. So this is a, a very difficult situation for those who are not just so much undecided, but even for those who already knew where their loyalties were. I'm glad I wasn't alive back then as, as much as I enjoy this uh, period of time, but there is a side of me who is probably glad I was not alive because I can't imagine being confronted by a large uh, presence of British troops who could have confronted me and said, hey, look, we're going to give you two choices. Number one, you uh, take up um, your loyalties to the crown, and if so, uh, we will leave you alone. But if you do the opposite, you will be arrested and hung. And think about it. I wouldn't even have the chance to have probably gone to court to even uh, defended my actions. So these are very uh, troubling times, not just for soldiers, but for um, innocent civilians. And it's very safe to say that the rules of war respecting prisoners and civilians would not be honored in the southern colonies. The whole message for the southern campaign in the eyes of uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis and for the crown itself was to, um, was to oversee, not so much oversee, but the goal was to um, get the assumption that that leaders, individual leaders in the southern colonies, uh, those who were loyal to the crown would be responsible for leading the uprisings. They would be the ones that could um, muster enough men together to, um, what do you call it, to repel all um, patriot attacks. In other words, by quashing the rebellions, the, um, what do you call it, the um, British um, resistance would prevail and the southern colonies would not only retain their um, loyalties to the crown, but, but in the end, um, any uh, chances of an American victory that would have resulted in British defeat altogether would have been reduced. So that's the objective of the, um, of, uh, the crown and for uh, General uh, Lord Ch Charles Cornwallis. But we'll uh, see if that does happen. So uh, once James Monroe's intelligence gathering assignment ends, he still is remain committed to public service. And I think that's smart because just when one door closes, another one is always bound to be open, uh, big and small. I mean, how do you think our forefathers became successful? They just didn't sit around on a couch waiting for someone to say, hey, here's your assignment. No, they had to work. Um, to um, become successful. Don't you think that's fair to say, even in today's time? So here's a bonus question to think about. Uh, despite the war having moved into the southern colonies starting around uh, late 1778 and onward, was Philadelphia, which is still the nation's uh, capital, or in this case the capital for the uh, Confederation Congress, is Philadelphia still vulnerable to anything unexpected? Uh, yes. In 1780, the city itself experienced an epidemic that impacted everyone, including members of Congress. It was known as the flux. What I know about the flux was this, was that, there, that it brought on severe dysentery, which had resulted in people having consumed foul water and if that was bad enough, I mean, that resulted in a lot of deaths. 
even a few members of Congress lost family members to this. If that was bad enough, then try two years later, come seven, well, given we are already in 1780, I should say, if the flux was bad enough, how about uh, General Benedict Arnold defecting over to the British side? You know, we've been told for a number of years about his defection, but his defection was not something that just happened overnight. I truly do believe it is fair to say that Benedict Arnold's uh, first signs of defection came back in 1777. You know, he had a lot of uh, promise as a um, military leader, but sadly at uh, Saratoga, New York, or should I say Saratoga Springs, Benedict Arnold um, was uh, treated like dirt by General Horatio Gates. Benedict Arnold was an up-and-coming um, military figure who had all kinds of grand ideas and plans on how to go about waging war with the enemy, being Britain, or the British, I should say. For every suggestion Benedict Arnold gave to Horatio Gates, Horatio Gates turns it down. Finally, Benedict Arnold takes matters into his own hands where he leads, a, he leads a couple of charges. And these charges were so successful that it um, drove the British back and ultimately helped us win the battle. And not just the battle itself, but finally convinced the French that, hey, we were uh, worthy enough to have um, some form of international support. Well, what do you know, when uh, British General John Burgoyne uh, surrenders at Saratoga, when the um, exchange of, um, the terms exchange, where he presents uh, his sword as a means of surrender and gives it to Horatio Gates, Horatio Gates really didn't, um, he, he really didn't um, do enough to um, help us win that war, win that battle. It was all Benedict Arnold's ingenuity. And Benedict Arnold sadly was shot in that battle. He was shot in the thigh. But I do remember watching on a um, program some years back on the History Channel about the American Revolution, an author by the name of Willard Stern Randall, and I read one of his books uh, some years back called Thomas Jefferson, A Life. I liked what Willard Stern Randall had to say about had said about the um, aftermath of uh, the battle at Saratoga. He said, Benedict Arnold did say this, and Willard Stern Randall mentioned it in a quote. Arnold had said the following, I wish I had been shot in my heart. I wish I had been shot in the heart instead of in the thigh. Why the heart? Because Benedict Arnold's dignity and self-respect had been taken from him by Horatio Gates. And by having been shot in the heart, maybe for Benedict Arnold, he could have rested in peace a little bit better versus being shot in the thigh. Because to him, being shot, I guess being shot in the thigh would have meant a wound that um, had more long-term repercussions. I also know that um, Benedict Arnold had asked for favors from George Washington. While George Washington was sympathetic to Benedict Arnold... He did, um, he said to him something like this, you know, patience is a virtue that must be exercised at all times, and how true that is. But I think for Benedict Arnold, in the end, 
He just couldn't stand being um, denied and turned away. But I still believe that the that the seeds for his uh, desertion over to the British side stemmed from as far back as Saratoga. But when Benedict Arnold does defect, it is a huge um, blow uh, to the Patriots. It um, angers George Washington. It angers a lot of people. A lot of people are wondering, or left to wonder, how could he have done the unthinkable? Well, I can tell you this much, though. Um, the British, believe it or not, never really took Benedict Arnold in as one of their own. And I think it's fair to say that Benedict Arnold, up until the end of the American Revolution, while he may have been fighting on the British side, he, he was fighting a war in which um, he lacked identity altogether. In other words, he, was, he had struggled for years to get the, uh, uh, the respect, self-respect and dignity that he had deserved for whatever contributions he made on the battlefield, but yet going over to the British side, he still wasn't valued. In other words, he didn't get the same value as a General John Burgoyne, uh, William Howe, Richard Howe, the Howe brothers, I should say. He didn't get the same value as a Banistre Tarleton or a Lord Charles Cornwallis. Bottom line is, Benedict Arnold was pretty much the low man on the totem pole. Another question to think about here is this. Um, would Virginia get invaded by British forces before 1780 came to an end? Uh, the answer is yes. A friend of James Madison's wrote him to say that once the British got into Newport News, they overtook the city of Hampton as well as going about fortifying Portsmouth to making an attack on Suffolk. Well, this is uh, not so good news right here if you're a patriot, but there is some good news, though, to report that will help modify the situation. The patriots in Virginia, most notably being the militiamen, rallied in enough time to where they fought back against, um, against these attacks that would have helped, that would have prevented, which did prevent further British inland encroachments. So, okay, it, it's bad enough that they've already made, uh, or should I say, landed in dock into uh, Portsmouth, but now going in, or into uh, Newport News, but now going into these other towns or cities, this is what what's going to lead up to that gradual march towards the present day, the present capital being Richmond and further um, past R Richmond. The invasion of Virginia, per what I had just mentioned a moment ago, had taken place in October 1780, and James Madison would be added to the congressional committee that responded with the commander of the Southern Continental Army. Now, in October of 1780, who would George Washington appoint as to be head commander of the Southern Continental Army? Well, I could tell you all this much. Do you know who uh, Congress appointed right away when the, uh, when the war started shifting to the South? Horatio Gates, the guy who snubbed Benedict Arnold at Saratoga. Horatio Gates to, uh, to many of his own uh, soldiers and other figures referred to him as Granny Gates. You know why? Because as historians have said, Horatio Gates was stubborn. He, um, he looked old. 
He didn't, um, he was too big of a micromanager or let alone a control freak. He was so set in his own ways that no matter how big or small a new proposal um, presented itself, he wasn't going to have anything of it. And quite frankly, um, it's a good thing that the switch in leadership was made when it had, when it was done, rather, uh, because um, around the middle of 1780, the British uh, annihilated uh, General Gates' forces at, in Camden, South Carolina. It was so bad that um, what people don't know is that all of the men that came to South Carolina actually were from Virginia, not just from Virginia, but you had men as far north that marched as New Jer- from as far north as New Jersey and Maryland. So can you imagine um, marching 400 to 500 miles away or downward from a north to south route? And most of these soldiers are very disoriented. They have not had enough sleep. They don't have adequate um, food. Uh, as a matter of fact, one historian said that it got so bad that the only way to make their soup taste better, and I kid you not, people, this this really did happen. Many of the soldiers had to use hair powder to thicken their soup. So I can't imagine what that would have done to to your body, but it probably would have caused some of the soldiers to have probably died. And to make matters worse, you're going from one climate to another, and in the hot summers in South Carolina, that would make um, adaptation even um, more challenging. So, yes, uh, the Battle of Camden is a disaster, but it's a disaster because of how Horatio Gates planned um, the attack. And so, after the attack, and after the after we um, after the calamity or the debacle. Horatio Gates um, leaves. He leaves everybody else to fend for themselves. So when George Washington learns of that, he is beside himself and appalled. And that's when he appoints a fellow by the name of Nathaniel Green to be the head commander of the Southern Continental Army. And boy, was that a very, very wise uh, choice. As a matter of fact, Nathaniel Green was so smart that he figured out how to um, reinvent um, warfare not just in South Carolina, but for the South itself. No longer would there be um, traditional um, mass armies lining up to fight the British in an open battlefield. He and another fellow named Francis Marion would uh, go about resorting to guerrilla warfare. That is, unconventional warfare where you have pockets of um, militiamen, you have pockets of um, men from various regiments engaging British troops in um, combat that's not confined so much to the open battlefield, but skirmishes that are in the woods, skirmishes that um, will take out a select number of British soldiers, but force those who have not been shot into uh, leaving their posts and moving them into a northern uh, direction to where they um, get farther and farther away from their command posts. So the bottom line is is to engage the enemy in guerrilla warfare where they are being um, forced to leave their uh, confines but forced to go in a manner that will take them miles away to where they 
are uh, lacking in reinforce, reinforcement supply as well as uh, lacking with uh, overall uh, supplies in general. This strategy will pay off big time. Here's another bonus question. You know, these are trying times. It just wasn't a, um, a one-time thing when Thomas Paine said that back in 1776. But for every uh, new year and for every battle that the uh, Continental Army is facing or, or is engaged in, yes, it is. The, these moments are going to try men's souls. It will either make or break their courage. But would, the, would New Year's Day of 1781 start off well for George Washington? Uh, the answer is no. How so? Well, American soldiers engaged in a mutiny at Morristown, Pennsylvania, and killed two of their own fellow officers. You know, it's bad enough when you engage in a revolt or, or an attempt to revolt, and if it can get put down, that's great. But when it resorts to violence where one officer or just even a handful of soldiers are either hurt or in a case here where two of them die, yeah, that's, that's bad. It's not bad. It's beyond bad. So how did this uh, result? Well, the complaints ranged from soldiers enduring multiple bouts of starvation. Yes, there was not enough food. But it's not like George Washington sat back and said, well, um, you all are left to fend for yourselves. Washington had pleaded with Congress to send more provisions. But remember, folks, Congress is uh, cash-strapped. They don't even have the money. And where, I mean, it's not like they can go call up a, a food supply center and say, hey, bring down um, X number of barrels of salted pork for the soldiers in uh, Pennsylvania. Other complaints ranged from uh, lacking inadequate clothing. Yes, you could see how many of them uh, did not were not properly clothed and did not have the accessibility to obtain other clothing, especially when it was uh, frigid temperatures below zero. And last but not least, the issue of pay. Uh, you know, the Continental Army, or the soldiers that made up the Continental Army, had been promised pay. And for many of them, they had stayed beyond their uh, general enlistment contract period of time. You know, yes, you would like to believe that the soldiers would have received their pay. But, who's, but here's the problem, folks. Paper money is worthless. What are you going to, If you were to pay these soldiers in paper money, what could they even buy with the paper money? Okay, it, it, it's one thing to have a promise be broken, but what if you give them the paper money and then all of a sudden it's worthless to the point where they can't even buy, they can't even purchase the basic necessities for survival. The bottom line is this is a no-win situation. And I could see how many of the soldiers got so angry to the point where they did resort to violence for the wrong reasons, not that it would have been right if it had been the opposite, but... There comes a time where a boiling point arises and when all other strategies for um, modifying a, a problem don't get resolved, then yes, people will resort to violence. 
Even the best of people do it. I do know this, uh, that there were many situations where soldiers, and it probably happened on the British side too, but most notably on the American side, that many troops did go to people's homes and confiscated their livestock and confiscated other um, necessities to ensure that their survival um, would be a, a definite. So I can't imagine being out on a farm and all of a sudden being confronted by, um, by uh, troops who are um, supposed to be protecting you, but at the same time now they are wanting to take away your livestock because they don't have any uh, food for their own. And it's not like the soldiers could have just gone out into an open field and started hunting for food, because think about it, if you did that, then everybody's going to start fighting over who's going to get how much food of their own. So the bottom line is this, uh, the Continental Army, even into the start of 1781, is facing an internal struggle that can be best summarized as this, survival of the fittest. Well, uh, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you this question here. Now that we know Benedict Arnold has defected over to the British side, did he make his presence known in Virginia? Yes, he led a group of fifteen hundred men into Richmond, destroying public buildings, including the same for foundries that had produced arms, munitions, and rum. So he's making his presence known that he is um, for real, and that when it's all said and done with, he's, he's finally found where he belongs and that uh, history is going to, um, what do you call it, uh, give him all the glory. Well, I hate to say this, I don't think history really did give him all the glory, and perhaps for the right reasons. Now, in March of 1781, the Articles of Confederation was finally ratified by all 13 states. Maryland was the last holdout. The Continental Congress now becomes the Congress of the Confederation. And French forces would physically arrive into Virginia well after the start of 1781. I'm sure most of you all were wondering, why is it taking the French so long to get over here? Well, remember folks, you know, the French are coming by boats. You know, they don't have airplanes. Of course, airplanes don't exist back then, but, you know, you make it over as soon as you can. But they do come. Believe me, they do. Now, in April of 1781, Governor Thomas Jefferson writes to the Virginia delegation at Philadelphia that 4,000 British troops were in Portsmouth. Jefferson was convinced that the war in Virginia had put an entire halt on all commercial activities, and how right he is. Virginia was lacking supplies from within. All the existing supplies had been sent to the Carolinas where, the, where greater engagements had taken place. All right, well, as I mentioned earlier about the Battle of Camden in South Carolina, you also have uh, in North Carolina uh, the Battle at Kings Mountain, uh, which was a huge success uh, for the Americans and that we killed over 200 of the uh, British, 200 British troops through means of guerrilla warfare tactics. Then um, in 1781, you'll have between uh, very late 1780 or and into 1781, you have uh, the battle at Guilford Courthouse, uh, which is outside of Greensboro, another big success for the Americans. 
and that they are driving British forces away from South Carolina into North Carolina without any means of being able to turn back around and get to their proper, um, not just so much their chain of command post, but their proper supply lines. So therefore, guerrilla warfare tactics do work. As a matter of fact, Francis Marion was so successful at it that one British general finally said that I could not chase that. I've gone as far as into the swamp and that fox still eluded me. That British general ended up giving Francis Marion the nickname of Swamp Fox. In other words, no matter how far, no matter how fast Francis Marion could elude the opposition, he moved as quick as a fox. And he went hiding into places like swamps, places where the British dreaded going in for a variety of reasons, ranging from mosquitoes, just ranging to all the unpleasantries that would have, um, that a swamp itself would have presented. Now, I find uh, something else interesting t here, too, that for Governor uh, Jefferson, that um, with his state lacking supplies, unfortunately, we don't have in this day and time, or at that day and time, what was called a Defense Production Act. In other words, we, we just couldn't uh, put people on assembly lines and say, hey, let's make all these uh, products, or not just products, but all these um, provisions to give to... Um, the troops down in the south and for any existing force that might be in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. We didn't have any of that, but boy, would it have been nice if that had been the case uh, back then, because if that had been so, then I think Virginia would have, um, would have uh, been all right. But these are trying times for everybody, no matter where you are. No one is immune from them. Now, on April 28th of 1781, the British troops capture the former Virginia capital of Williamsburg. And I will tell you all this. Williamsburg was never the same after uh, the capital was relocated to Virginia. Shops closed. A lot of people obviously moved to go to Richmond. But Williamsburg really became a ghost town. It's very unfortunate that it happened that way. Even Thomas Jefferson's law professor, George Wythe, would eventually move to Richmond because once the capital left, even Wythe himself described just how awful the demise itself was, one that he could no longer um, take to see. Now, on May 14th of 1781, Thomas Jefferson informed the Virginia delegates in Philadelphia that the Virginia Assembly had already departed from Richmond to Charlottesville. So in the next couple of months, the Virginia capital will be moving, or I should say relocating, more than once. It's probably not the uh, plan that Jefferson would have had all along, but hey, if government's going to function, you've got to, and you know that, um, that the British are... Um, are going to take are going to take a hold of where the present location is then you need to have plan B because if you don't then everybody's lives are at stake now here's something I want to share with you all because it involves Thomas Jefferson I've known about this for a long time but it is something that cannot be ignored this did happen and had it not been for this individual who saved Jefferson's life Thomas Jefferson um, would have met a very, very tragic fate.
So, here's my question to you all. What happened on June 4th of 1781 that became a matter of life and death for Governor Thomas Jefferson? A writer named Jack Jewett rode throughout the night to warn Thomas Jefferson that British forces under Colonel Banastray Tarleton were closing in on Monticello and Charlottesville. Jack Jewett himself learned of the British plan to capture Jefferson and the legislature at a tavern in Cuckoo. Now, I kid you not, there is a little town in Virginia called Cuckoo in Louisa County, which is not too far from Albemarle, where Jefferson lived. If any of you all aren't sure where Louisa County is, it's not too far from where I live. It borders uh, Fluvanna, uh, Spotsylvania, uh, Goochland, and, um, and yes, and Albemarle, and, and as well as Hanover. Hanover County is uh, not far from Louisa either. But uh, Jack Jewett was at a tavern in Cuckoo, and he learned of the British uh, plan to go about capturing Thomas Jefferson. So Jack Jewett took matters into his own hands and rode throughout the night. But what, uh, what was unique for Jack Jewett, though, was that he, had, he knew of several different routes that were, um, what do you call it, that provided easy access to get to uh, Monticello that the British didn't know. I think it's fair to say, though, if uh, Jack Jewett was not at this tavern, I'm not sure who else would have picked up on this uh, plot. Now, if, and I will say this too, uh, Louisa, there are several ways to get to Louisa County. You can go, uh, if you live here in Virginia, you can go uh, straight up, straight out 64 and get off at um, exit, um, I want to say it's exit 148, I believe it is. But you can also go uh, 522 and there is a mile, there is a marker sign uh, that honors Jack Jewett for uh, his heroic work. Or should I say that mid, that uh, famous ride? As a matter of fact, many historians refer to him as the Paul Revere of the South. And when Jack Jewett um, arrived uh, to Monticello, he warned Thomas Jefferson of what was at stake. He told him that the um, that that the British were um, were pretty much uh, not far from his home. At first, uh, historians know at first Jefferson did not want to believe what had happened or what was going to happen, but Jack Jewett looked at him and said, hey, I'm not lying to you. You better go now or, you, um, or, or time will not be on your side to make it out of here safe. And it just so happens that Jefferson's slaves stalled. They were the ones that halted the British uh, advance. They were, the, they were the ones that actually um, provided uh, Banastray Tarleton and his forces with food, but uh, found ways to stall them from making um, their entry into Monticello. So Thomas Jefferson would um, made it off in time, and he rode off to Bedford County where he would be reunited with his family. Jefferson's wife, um, her name was uh, Martha, Martha's uh, late father, who was John Wales, owned vast amounts of property in Bedford County. And years later, Jefferson would build the first octagonal home in the United States, known as Poplar Forest. 
It's very well worth visiting. My wife and I went there about eight years ago. I had gone on a few other occasions years past. But uh, that would ultimately become Thomas Jefferson's getaway retreat when things got so hectic and out of control at Monticello. Basically, when he never got the privacy he deserved, he went to uh, Poplar Forest to um, escape it all. Now... um, Yes, had it not been for Jack Jewett's midnight ride, Thomas Jefferson and other Virginia government officials would have been captured by the British, and they would have been sent to England where they all would have met a tragic fate. In other words, they all would have hung. So can you imagine, had it not been for Jack Jewett, that if the British had made it to Monticello, they would have uh, pretty much um, overtaken his home and captured him and everyone right on the spot. That, to them, would have been the granddaddy of them all. Not just capturing Thomas Jefferson, but capturing the man who was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Now, as for the Virginia legislature, they would convene in Stanton. And a new governor would be uh, elected. His name was Thomas Nelson, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But the end of Jefferson's governorship governorship did mark one of the darkest points in his political career. There were those in the Virginia uh, General Assembly and and, um, and government who wanted Jefferson impeached. They wanted him uh, reprimanded for what they thought was irreparable conduct. You know, Thomas Jefferson probably did everything he could to um, prevent the British from going uh, further westward. But at the same time, historians know that he did not heed proper warnings from George Washington and others that could have modified things a little bit better. But in the very end of 1781, historians do know that Jefferson went before court and explained all of his actions. And he also explained all the things that perhaps he could have done better. And when he explained all those reasons those what-ifs, everybody forgave him. I guess it's fair to say that Jefferson had time on his side to learn from his mistakes. And I think it's fair to say that for all of Jefferson's accomplishments, that probably being governor was not one of them that he wanted to be remembered for. Moving on. On August 3rd of 1781, Virginia Governor Thomas Nelson had informed the Virginia delegation, who was still in Philadelphia, that British forces had landed on the shores of York and Gloucester. Gloucester was on the north side of the York River, whereas York was on the south side. And the British would make their stand at Yorktown. Now come early September of 1781, the French Admiral Comte de Gras brought the fleet into brought his fleet into the Chesapeake Bay to reverse what the British had done in terms of their naval strength. I mean, the, you have to remember folks, the British are not just the mightiest empire in the world, but they are the mightiest they have the mightiest navy in the world. So what have they done to the Americans this whole time? They've blocked trade to capturing ships. They've made life on our waters miserable. 
Now, here's a question to think about. What kind of atrocities had been committed? Well, atrocity itself is a vague term. Of course, oftentimes when I think of atrocities, I think of uh, modern-day history and what happened with the Holocaust. And, that and those atrocities were horrible. Not just killing six million Jews, what the Nazis did, but how they went about killing them. Those were, those were examples of atrocities that, um, that are so evil that, that we have to constantly be reminded that, yes, number one, that the Holocaust happened, but number two, to make sure that man does everything in his own power to prevent it fr from something like that ever happening again. But as for the atrocities that occurred during the American Revolution, they had been committed against innocent civilians by British forces from all ranks. Many British soldiers had committed barbaric acts ranging from rape, murder, to stealing and burning people's personal properties, being their homes and farmland. I hate to say this, but yes, rape and murder had taken place. After all, British forces did hang innocent civilians who refused to take up arms with with the crown or not just take up arms but but be loyal to the crown think about all those prisoners who um died um on the ships in New York especially during the New York campaign in 1776 the, uh, they historians know that about 12,000 prisoners died that's more people who dying in the American Revolution than soldiers that had died on the battlefield but the British gave those prisoners on the ships two choices, to either um, be loyal to the crown and they would be released or they would remain prisoner for as long as they shall live. And thousands of those men chose to remain prisoner. Why? Because by uh, defecting, they could have been putting their own fellow uh, patriots in, in more danger than they already were. But sadly, many of those uh, prisoners were murdered. So, you know, when we think of uh, barbaric acts, they're not always confined to just killing soldiers. It involves, sadly, innocent people. And Matt, James Madison himself was chairman of the Committee on a Retaliation, which helped create a solution towards ending atrocities against civilians. And that answer was the following. Current, current British officers who, had served, were, who were serving as prisoners of war would have to answer for actions with their own lives, which meant punishment by death. You know, I know it sounds, um, to me it sounds more like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth situation, but the Americans had endured a lot of suffering at the hands of the British. And they felt that the best way to get back at them was for them to um, have to answer for their, with their own lives. But this was before a court system, a modern-day court system, would evolve as we know it today. The full-scale invasion of Virginia at Yorktown also meant that other, um, that other uh, matters would be temporarily suspended. That is... All the county courts would have their um, cases and trials be suspended as well as um, any current legal proceedings. 
And, and all of this did impact James Monroe's ambitions to, in pursuing to become a lawyer. Think about it. If court's not in session and no legal proceedings are going on, then how is he going to be able to, um, to uh, study in going about becoming a lawyer? So that's going to be on hiatus right now. Since James Monroe was no longer involved in military combat, what course of action did he go about pursuing? Well, he, would, he um, decided to go abroad to Europe and continue his studies with Thomas Jefferson's full support. Now, on October 5th of 1781, Governor Thomas Nelson wrote the Virginia delegates in Congress informing them that British troops under Colonel Banastre Tarleton were attacked and that Tarleton himself was wounded. And two weeks later, on October the 19th, hard to believe that was 239 years ago, though, the Battle of Yorktown ended with the British surrender. Now, I've mentioned Colonel Banastre Tarleton on um, many of the uh, instances tonight. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, what's unique about Colonel Banastre Tarleton? Well, I can tell you this. Historians have dubbed him Bloody Ban. There, there's a reason why he's called Bloody Ban. He was a ruthless leader that led what was called the British Dragoons. They were a cavalry force, and they were the um, most experienced of uh, cavalrymen uh, raiders. Banastre Tarleton, when, when he commanded you better have followed his orders. He didn't cut his men slack. But if you were on the opposition and you threw up your arms to surrender, chances are Banastre Tarleton wouldn't have accepted your surrender right away. Historians know that he was so ruthless and evil that he would take his sword and actually cut off a person's arm from the opposing side. There was even a clip from a battle in South Carolina I want to say it was from the Waxhaws, where, which, which is now on present-day South Carolina, North Carolina line, where uh, he uh, massacred uh, several uh, innocent um, American troops to the point where the rally cry became known for future battles in South Carolina as, remember, the Waxhaws. I think it's fair to say at that battle that the Americans finally gave him the nickname Bloody Ban because of how ruthless he was in his treatment, not just towards the American soldiers, but also to innocent civilians. If any of you all uh, remember the movie uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson and the late Heath Ledger, there was a fella on the British side who was a head cavalryman. His name was Tavington, Colonel Tavington. He was, how do you call it? He reminds me of Colonel Banastre Tarleton, uh, it's very likely that his character was a, um, not a spinoff, but a uh, resemblance to that of Colonel Banastre Tarleton. I, I thoroughly um, enjoy watching the, watching the movie The Patriot for, historic, for history purposes, but I can tell you, even many historic interpreters at Williamsburg have said that Hollywood did not um, accurately get The Patriot right on certain grounds. It is fair to say that Mel Gibson, though, portrayed a variety of um, South Carolina um, military figures, ranging from Francis Marion to Thomas Sumter 
As a matter of fact, Sumter, South Carolina is named after Thomas Sumter. And uh, the term Gamecock also was um, given by how, um, by how forces in South Carolina engaged in, in terms of guerrilla-style warfare. Gamecocks were, you know, what do you call it, wild a wild, um, you know, wild chicken going in all different directions. And that's kind of like how the Continental Army was in terms of how they engaged in um, guerrilla warfare against the British. But did the, but, but, but for those of you who are wondering about Banistre Tarleton, that's, he's often referred to as Bloody Ban. He um, never um, offered the opposition any kind of a surrender. But what do you know? Banistre Tarleton was wounded. So it's fair to say that we finally were able to get the upper hand on him by making his life miserable by wounding him. Now here's an important bonus question to think about. Did the American victory at Yorktown end the Revolutionary War altogether? No. The American government under the Articles of Confederation still remained in chaos, Congress lacked the authority in making states pay down debts to having all its members escape Philadelphia in the midst of a crisis involving soldiers demanding back pay. So, you know, yes, we've, we've defeated the mightiest military force in the world, but yet we are facing so many issues from within. Now you almost have to wonder, hey, What's going to happen next? In a couple of months from now, are we going to ask to be uh, are we going to ask to be returned as uh, subjects to the British um, Empire? I would hope not, but I'm not sure what else um, our Continental Congress can even do in a time of crisis. So basically, the United States is uh, stuck in a crossfire between war and peace, and the British still had a tight grip on large parts of the United States, including Charleston, South Carolina, and New York. So, we're really not out of the woods. We still have a long ways to go, people. It's going to take a lot of work to, um, to get out of it. Alright, here's a bonus question right here. Did James Monroe's plans for visiting Europe go through? It turns out they didn't. The ship he was supposed to have traveled on uh, canceled those plans for, un for reasons that we don't know, but perhaps James Monroe might have, um, perhaps it might have just been a blessing. But new adventures in the, polit in the political arena would help re-jump his ambitions or rejuvenate his ambitions, I should say. Because in the year later, 1782, at the age of 24, he goes about representing King George County in the House of Delegates. He benefited from having a letter of recommendation on George Washington's behalf. Monroe himself spent a great deal of time reading upon all things legislative uh, work-related. He avoided um, the gambling and the partying life. Another bonus question here is this. What issues did James Madison take on in Philadelphia while James Monroe's political career began in Richmond? Well, there were many issues um, Madison was involved with, but I found his involvement in the government's financial affairs to be very provocative or interesting, in large part because these affairs hit Madison the hardest. 
given just how bad they already were. So what did Madison do uh, to help modify the situation? He helped pass a motion ordering the superintendent of finance to determine debts owed by the United States, along with reporting to Congress every six months on money borrowed to bills of credit issued. So it's fair to say that Madison might be um, trying to get what's called a modern-day Federal Reserve System started. Hey, knowing how dire the financial situation is, Madison's willing to try anything. I just hope that all the other states would be supportive. We shall see about that. And, but on May 20th of 1782, the 13 states had contributed just $5,500 altogether, only a fourth of what was necessary to fund the government's operation, government operations for one day alone. Only a fourth. That means just about 25% of what was necessary. To us, $5,500 doesn't seem like a lot, but that was a lot of money to have contributed just to keep the government partially afloat. You know, we forget just how fragile our, our, um, our country's uh, state of well-being was remained in even after the war had ended. We just didn't have time to sing... Um, we just didn't have time to go about living happily ever after as though war itself never happened. It, you know, each day presented a daunting challenge one day after the other. But I will admit that life is not supposed to be a cakewalk either. But we forget just how um, agonizing and how, um, how um, imperative our situation was just to stay afloat, given that we have defeated the mightiest empire in the world. Here's a bonus question right here. Did James Monroe assist with Virginia's post-war transition movement? Yes. He was appointed as a member to the Council of State in June of 1782. Now, what challenge in particular did many states face during 1782? The answer is the following. The ability to have soldiers ready... In the event, peace talks failed between U.S. and Britain. Well, think about it. If you don't have soldiers ready in the event that anything unexpected happens, how are you going to be able to keep the peace? It's a very serious question, folks. I mean, you can't just assume and sit back and say, oh, uh, the people in the community will know how to conduct themselves properly. They won't riot. How do you know that? You don't know that. That's why you've got to have, this would be a fundamental argument um, down the road when the Constitution came into play. How do you go about maintaining an army in a time of peace? Is an army essential in a time of peace? Well, if you want to maintain peace, you've got to have some form of standing army. You've got to have some form of military who's going to be looking over uh, and ensuring that, that, um, that people's lives will be protected at all costs. And if that's not challenging enough, getting um, back to resolving ordinary matters is a challenge onto itself. But it does resume in Virginia 
It ranges from clemency on soldiers accused of manslaughter to overseeing the issuing of professional licenses. You know, licensing people in various professions. Now, British troop forces still remain prevalent in Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina around 1782. But before 1782 comes to an end, British forces will pull out of Savannah. So we can breathe a, we can breathe a 